So just as a reminder that in two weeks, and, and, I, and that's why I'm, I'm a little bit time sensitive now because I got this week and next week, but we published it to the world that uh, two weeks from now, I've got one more week after today to finish out Genesis, we're going to start into Esther. So I remind you of that. Um, you can help get the word out a little bit. Maybe there's somebody looking for a Sunday school class to start up where they're not starting in the middle. This would be a good time to do that. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to Esther. Maybe I'm going to have to make a trip to Branson to the Sight and Sound Theater because everybody's telling me how really good of a job they do with that. But then again, maybe that would intimidate me. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, we'd have a good time with it. But uh, So Esther, in a couple of weeks. Next week, I want to do a high-level review, kind of a, by outline topic or something like that, review of the book of Genesis. This is an amazing book, and it was amazing for me to prepare as we were going through it. But that's preparing in, in the in the in the chapters and in the, I don't mean chapters biblically, I mean chapters of who's the main character, what's going on, okay, we finished up with that character now with the next one. But when you take a look at Genesis as a whole, it is a tremendous book. It is biblically the foundation of God's creation and redemption of mankind. And you can see the tentacles of Genesis and the foundations it lays go all the way through everything we see in the scriptures coming up through Christ and so on. Not every little detail, but the big picture. And so I want to have a chance to just look at that uh, together, and that's what we'll be doing next week. Now let's do what we're going to do this week. Last time, we're in Genesis chapter 50. We're going to look at the last verses, beginning with verse 15. We'll go through verse 26. Last time we saw Jacob had died... And Joseph was greatly moved by that. He had the Egyptian medical service embalmed Jacob. And that process took 40 days. With the Egyptians together, Joseph and his brothers and family mourned in Egypt over Jacob's passing for 70 days. And then with Pharaoh's support, Joseph was able to complete a promise that he'd made to his father Jacob. And so there's a group that takes, starts out for Canaan for the purpose of burying Jacob in the cave that Abraham had bought when Sarah passed away uh, that's up in, uh, in the area of the Oaks of Mamre. And so Pharaoh says go, and there's a large group that proceeded to Canaan, and that group included Jacob's family, all but the little children, the servants of Pharaoh... And, of course, by including Jacob's family, we get Joseph. And in Pharaoh's group, we even have chariots and horsemen. So, I mean, this is a major undertaking, a major excursion from Egypt to Canaan. They come to the threshing floor of Atad, and there is such a time of mourning when they get there that the locals change the name to mean Egyptians' mourning. And uh, so that is what is is going on there and then Jacob was buried in the cave as planned and all returned to Egypt and so now we're going to look at verses 15 through 21 and and see the end of Joseph's time on earth and his passing and what goes into that but we get a little bit more of the story in between first so I would really like someone, if they would, to read verses 15 through 21 for us of Genesis 50. Who can do that for us? Are you there, Alan? Yeah. Thank you. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to, message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he, he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Micah, the son of Manasseh, Manasseh were, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. All right. So, beginning in verse 15, we see that Joseph's brothers took note of a possible issue now that Jacob was dead. What was their concern? Joseph might take out some... So what does Jacob's passing have to do with that? It's kind of the buffer between that. Yeah, it may... You know, and so we're speculating just a bit, but I think it's pretty obvious that in some fashion, <coughs> they thought it was at least possible, if not probable, that Jacob was... His presence was causing Joseph to not create family stress, or maybe even Jacob was holding Joseph back, or for some reason, they realize now that the, the level of accountability for Joseph to Jacob was gone, so now Joseph had maybe a freer hand. And so their concern is maybe Joseph, uh, in the words of, what version are you reading, Alan? Uh, ESV. ESV, the words of ESV, maybe Joseph hates us in the uh, New American Standard. Uh, Joseph bears a grudge and uh, maybe pays us back in full for what we've done. I find that an interesting statement. Did they know that they had meant and done evil to Joseph? Absolutely. Were they walking around with a pocket full of guilt? Maybe pocket full would be too small. A whole load of guilt on their back all the time? Yeah, good for them. Yeah, good for them. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're mindful that what we did was pretty, pretty significant. And, it, and the score, in one sense, has there been judgment over it? No. Nothing's really happened. Um, and so here, here is this issue that they're still having. But before we look at that a whole lot more, let's go back to Genesis 45. This we're going to look at verses 4 through 15. And in Genesis 45, this is the time when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And so um, it's, it's a big deal uh, for Joseph and for his brothers. But let's see what Joseph said about it. Jo Genesis 45, 4 through 15. Who can read that for us? Go ahead. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Then they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And now do, you, do not be distressed or angry with yourself, because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. And the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. How long did you want me to go? Fifteen. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, you shall be near me, and you and your children, your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. 
And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all, of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, did, upon his Benjamin, uh, brother Benjamin's neck, and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. All right. So at the revealing, Joseph early on in what's recorded says what about the egregious sin to his brothers? What does he say? I think you find it in verse 5. Don't be grieved. Don't worry about it. For who sent me? God. And then um, verse 80 makes it clear. Well, verse 7, we ought to say this. God sent me for a purpose to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And we talked about remnant some time when we went through this and how important of a concept that is. Now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of his household. And look at all that God has done. And so then how does Joseph interact with his brothers following his words about how they should think about it? What's the interaction look like? Weeping, Weeping reunion, um, tension is, is in one sense being expressed, but in another sense is being drained out as they emotionally are sharing together as a family. He talks to them, they talk to him. Now, do you think... If that's what Joseph said, why are we still having an issue today? I think it's clearly one-sided in this in this particular instance, too. So you have Joseph who's doing the weeping. Joseph is happy for the reunion, and I think the brothers are probably still, and this is speculation, but the brothers are probably still on edge. And so true reconciliation probably doesn't happen until the later passage in Genesis. They're still, in the, in the, in the hearts of the brothers, maybe with the exception of Benjamin, there's still some tension there. There's still some, okay, um, I'm glad it's that way for the moment. I wonder if this is really how it's going to wind up. And it's just really revealing how they deal with it right here. Uh, because for them, it's still a lingering concern. And part, so why do you think it's a lingering concern from them, for them? That's just a question I ask so that we can recognize that they're still carrying around guilt, but also so that I can say it looks to me like a lack of faith. Here is Joseph proclaiming, it wasn't you that sent me here, but God. Now, you meant evil for me. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't shy from that in our passage today, but, but it's not all about evil. God sent me here. And so it's clear in Joseph's mind, he's saying, this is God's work. He sent me here to preserve a remnant, and this was God's grand plan. He didn't put the word grand in front of it, but clearly he looks at it as the sovereignty of God being exercised for the good of many. But I don't know that they had that level of faith. I mean, because if they did, if they had agreed with Joseph, you're right, God was working this out. Now who is their issue with? Do they have an issue left with Joseph if they really believe that? But do they still have an issue? Who do they have an issue with? Well, they've got an issue with themselves, but Jacob and that very sovereign God that worked this plan out of their evil intent. And it doesn't appear from what we're seeing today they're thinking at that level. They just, they just lied to Joseph. Well, that's exactly where I'm going next. because, So they've got this concern. Joseph maybe now is going to feel like there's nothing to keep him from dealing with us as harshly as he might want to. And so in verse 15 we see, well, when they saw he was dead, they said, what if he bears a grudge? And so in verse 16, they sent a message. And... They didn't even have guts enough to go themselves initially, did they? What message did they send? 
yeah. Oh, by the way, just so you know, Dad said before he died that you were to, uh, we were to, the message was to them, but the message was to Joseph implied, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And please now forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And so when this messenger comes, how does Joseph react? He weeps. Now there's a lot of reasons why he, his emotions may have come out here. When prior to this did the brothers confess to Joseph their sin against him? This is the most direct statement they make through the messenger and the message comes in the envelope of a lie as far as we know. Jacob never told them to do this with Joseph. So in terms of their own living out their lives, who are they depending on for wise responses to the events of life? themselves. They're trying to figure out how to fix evil and their potential consequences of their own evil with a lie. The message wasn't bad. Joseph, we sinned against you. If there's anything left, please forgive us. That's not a bad message, is it? Matter of fact, that was probably a necessary message. But no, they've got to weave Jacob's influence into it in order to try to put Joseph in a place where he has some level of obligation outside of their relationship with Joseph, but goes back to the relationship of Joseph with his father Jacob to try to bring that in to push on Joseph. In verse 18, we see, we see that his brothers also came in to tell and fell down before him and so behold, we're your servants. In other words... We're your slaves. We know you're in power over us. We know that we've sinned against you. We know we owe you. And so we're, we're yours. Verse 19, Joseph says this, Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? What's Joseph's question mean? When he says to them, Am I in God's place? Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? What is, what's in that question? Humility, because, you know, I'm not God. He's clearly saying that. What else? I think uh, he's trying to convince them that God's put him there, not them. That's coming, certainly, and that's a piece of his own thought process. And I think one more thing we can add to that is he's looking at them and saying, when you do evil, it's, it's a little bit like David and when he sins against Bathsheba and her husband and really the whole nation of Israel is harmed by it, against God and God only have I sinned. Does that mean that he didn't sin against these other people? No. But the real foundational issue, the real significance is you have sinned against God. You have done evil in the eyes of God. So I'm not going to play God. God has been with Joseph all the way. God has given him direction. God has empowered him. I don't know if I even want to say empowered him, but he's given him the information he needed, and the very power of God has flowed through him. That's a much better way of saying it. And so he goes, whoa, I'm not God. God worked through your evil and through all of these other events. Many of the things that the events in Joseph's life that took him to be where he was, were evil done against him. And he hasn't taken doubt on anybody. I mean, he could have said, I'm going to feed everybody in the land of Egypt except Potiphar and his wife. I mean, he could have done that. This is how we're going to conserve grain. I've got a list of eight people that don't get any. Well, that would be silly and frivolous, and Joseph didn't do that. He saw the bigger picture. He says, your problem's with God, not with me. I'm not going to play God here. Trust God to work these things out. Verse 20, very clearly, As for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Who's alive because of the things that Joseph did after God placed him in Egypt? Is that it? The whole Egyptian nation. I mean, the whole region was faced with a drought of seven years of no harvest. And I would not make light of this, but having grown up around farmers, not being one myself, and lived most of my life in rural Kansas, this year, was it hot and dry? Are farmers hurting in certain areas? You better believe it. And will, will that affect things? It'll affect their lives. It will affect prices for some things in the stores. It'll affect the ag economy. And, well, what are we going to feed the cattle? I mean, it, it can really wreak havoc in, what, in our food supply and in other kinds of things where ag products are used. And I've seen some years worse than this one. My father went through a couple. Um, and it was difficult. But can you imagine seven years of zero harvest? If we went for seven years with zero harvest, there are going to be a lot of people who don't survive. You know, that's, that's, that, that statement that's in the future about the great tribulation, a piece of bread would buy a bag of gold, might not even get a piece of bread for a bag of gold. I mean, it's, it would be terrible, and yet here's Joseph being held up by God to provide for these people a wise plan that came from God, both the information and the planning of it. There's no question. God was with Joseph, and he's going, this was God's plan. So because God meant it for good, did that negate the evil and the guilt and the um, judgment of God on these brothers of Joseph? No. No, this statement, God meant it for good, but you meant it for evil, is really huge. This really, frankly, is an underlying reality through all of Scripture. Here is God working good through the evil intents of these men's hearts. Not only the intent, but the action. And so here they did evil, and out of the evil they did, God made it a good thing. And so could we back up and say... You know, what does this start to become? This starts to become a conversation about the very sovereignty of God. Right? Did God know when he sent the dreams into Joseph's life what was going to happen? Okay, now that's an interesting way for me to say it. But now let's say it this way. Had God determined already out of his sovereign will what was going to happen with Joseph? Yeah, and we get into that interesting arena that we can so easily find ourselves in. We start talking talking about the sovereign will of God versus my own guilt for the evil I did. Let's go over to Romans 9. This is the poignant or classic place in the New Testament that we turn to when we want to think about the sovereignty of God. And there's some very good points in here. I want to make them very quickly. And then I'm going to move on to some other things to, to illustrate it. Beginning in verse 6, and I'm, I'm just going to read this so I can talk through as I read it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is talking about the promises to Israel. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. It said, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, 
not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Points right back to what we have been studying in in Genesis. And and here's what I want to take you back to. Uh, It would not be because of works, anything done, good or bad, but because of God meeting his purposes, this is what he determined. So if God determined ahead of time, am I going to love Esau or love Jacob and not Esau? If Jacob's going to be the one of the promise and receive the benefits, does that take Esau off the hook for his evil behaviors? And the answer is no. And that's the very question that begins in verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did this to make known the riches of the glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared forehand for glory, given us, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And the point of all this is the natural human defensive response is, if this was God's will, then he made me do it. He made me be evil. And that's just not the situation. We limit God so much when we think this way because God is able to take the evil intentions in the example we looked at today of the brothers of Joseph to accomplish what he wants done. Did that mean the brothers of Joseph did not have evil in their hearts? No, they had evil in their hearts. Are they accountable to God for that evil? Absolutely. And it just reveals to us the complexity and the greatness of who God is. That he can both take men who are evil and use their evil intents and actions to set up and accomplish his purposes. And yet he himself, the scriptures say, tempts no one. James tells us where our evil comes from. Where does it come from? We desire and don't have. And so sin is birthed in us. And if you follow down through what James says to the point, it results in death. And so did God get involved maybe with some of the thoughts of these men? Maybe. Probably. The traitors coming around at the right moment a brother that says let's not kill him let's sell him after all we can make some money out of this deal you know here they are setting up what God wants himself and I wrote down passages I really just can't take the time to go to these 
But if you looked at Exodus 4, Exodus 7, Exodus 8, and Exodus 9, these are the passages where we find <coughs> the plagues occurring and Pharaoh agreeing at each one because of the suffering, okay, we'll let them go out into the desert to worship. Now the last plague, he says, we'll get them out of here forever, which is what God's really headed for. But we'll let them go out and worship. And then the heart of Pharaoh becomes hard and he relents and says, no, they can't go. And when you read through those passages, sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and sometimes it says God hardens his heart. And both are absolutely true. What we're looking at there is God using the evil in Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his own will. And so it is God's will that Pharaoh's heart is hardened and his heart's hardened. It's also Pharaoh's will that he would harden his heart and his heart is hardened. And that's just an example of how God works through the events and the evil in men's hearts to harden, to do his work, to harden hearts in this case. And then let's think about Daniel for a minute. Now, we read in the book of Daniel, and we, we, if we just read the book of Daniel, we get kind of this isolated thought process about Daniel being over in a foreign land. Well, why was Daniel in a foreign land? Well, it was the judgment of God. They were overtaken, and Daniel was one of several of the Jewish boys that were taken captive, and the purpose of them was to raise them up to be leaders within Nebuchadnezzar's world. And when we think of Daniel, we think about him refusing the king's food, and God blessed that. We think about Daniel interpreting a dream and as a result, Daniel is promoted. We also think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we know what Nebuchadnezzar does, right? What does Nebuchadnezzar do to these boys when they refuse to worship the idol of Nebuchadnezzar that's put out there and everybody's supposed to bow to it? What do they do? Not happening in my life. Does Nebuchadnezzar, does it, he goes, well, okay, never mind. No, Nebuchadnezzar is angry. And he wants these boys to pay the price. He wants this to be an example to anybody that would dare <clears throat> to refuse to obey him at every turn. And so he gets this really hot fire, so hot that he has guards throw these young boys in there. Now, before they go in, they give a testimony. You know, we know God can save us. Don't know if he will, but no, he could. And the fire is so hot, the men throwing them in die from the heat. But those boys don't, and they see four walking around. And, of course, this is clearly a Christophany. Here's Christ there with them. They come out. They don't even smell like fire. We had a house burned down once, a rental house. wasn't the one we were living in. And uh, we had to, well, I spent a night in there on the end of a hose because every once in a while you'd see some embers try to crop back up. And so rural fire department, this old Dodge truck from World War II, oh, it was a mess. That stench was just impossible to forget. I can still smell it today if I want to stop and think a minute and mentally picture being in that in that attic of that house they didn't even smell like fire did Nebuchadnezzar mean evil yeah. was evil done yeah. yeah now the result was God was glorified in these three boys God can use and does use throughout, throughout history evil What's the greatest evil that's ever been perpetrated on this planet? The murder of Jesus Christ on a cross. To satisfy cravings of men in power in Jerusalem. Men who were fellow heirs of the promise. Jews themselves. And Messiah comes and they're jealous of him.
That's the primary thing behind it. They're jealous because he's going to take away their power. And out of their jealousy and out of their greed for power, they crucify him. Was that evil? Absolutely. But yet, this was God's plan. And when we read the scriptures, it even makes it clear. Um, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Let's read those two verses. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Who's got that? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. So who crucified Christ on the cross? It pleased him to crush him. Who's him? God himself. By implication, God is the one who sent Jesus to the cross. And we would not argue with that, would we? Now, was it that God wanted, had some vindictive thing in his heart that he wanted to hurt Christ? No. It was his plan of grace and mercy to come and be incarnate and to take upon himself the suffering the payment for sin that we owed, that those that would believe owed. And so, yes, the Jews have paid a price for killing Christ. They had evil in their hearts. The whole community was aroused in the main. There were some exceptions, I'm sure, but for the most part, they're all yelling, crucify him. And yet, God, this is a part of the pinnacle of God's plan of redemption. And so if you want to look at the scriptures, you will constantly find evil being done that God is able and does use to fulfill his purposes. Those of us who do evil are not free from the guilt of it apart from the grace of Christ. And those of us who do evil are all of us. The people who do the evil that we see in the Bible are guilty before God apart from his forgiveness, apart from restoration, apart from his mercy and grace. So let's go back to where we were at Genesis 50. I want to make the point that what Joseph was saying here, that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, both of those can be true at the same time, and that is significant and is an underlying theme for all of the history of mankind to date. And that was my point. But I've got one more point I want to make out of that, and I want to start with a question. If we looked at the evil that was done to Joseph, in the main, it started when they sold him, when they came and stripped his clothes off and threw him in the <coughs> pit, right? And then he sold into slavery, and he goes, becomes in Potiphar's house. That goes sideways. He winds up in jail. He foretells some dreams, interprets as a better word, and he finds himself then in front of Pharaoh a couple of years later to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. At what point do you think, go clear back to Joseph as a young man living at home, being sent out to check on his brothers. At what point do you think Joseph understood that there was evil being done to him, but God meant it for good. Now, I gave you a little bit of an impossible question to answer. Because we can't get into Joseph's head and know, can we? I would venture to guess, and it's purely a guess, that it did not start the moment he found himself in the pit. I, I don't think he was in the pit going, oh, this is cool. God's going to do something good here. But I don't know. And we do know that when he interprets the dream in Potiphar's prison, the dreams for those two servants of 
of Pharaoh, of the king, that he says, I don't belong here. At that point, he knows evil has been done. But along the way, the scriptures tell us, and we don't know what level Joseph was aware of it, but he had to have some awareness that God was with him. We see in his actions that God was with him because of his great successes in Potiphar's household and in the jail. But here's an interesting thing. Joseph doesn't hesitate to suggest, well, God can interpret your dreams. Tell me your dream. I mean, he recognizes God's at work in him. He has to know at that point. Otherwise, that would be quite an arrogant statement, wouldn't it? God can interpret your dream. Tell it to me. Like, I'm the path to God to get your dream interpreted? Well, that was an accurate statement. So somewhere along the way, Joseph was realizing and noticing and expecting the power of God to come out of his life, come out through his living, through his obedience. And sure enough, God was with him and was setting up this good thing to preserve many that Joseph talks about. Was it the moment when he was given the interpretation for Pharaoh's dream? Or maybe he already knew earlier through what God had revealed to him. Don't really know. But when people are living through things that God means for good while people are doing evil to them, there's probably going to be some question marks. Few of us in suffering are going to say, well, it'll be all right. God's got some good thing planned here. And frankly, if we looked at Hebrews 11, often those good things don't come out in an earthly result. We wind up having to wait until we see the house not made with hands to get a good result. Think about the people noticed in Revelation that were under the, under the um, I've got the word temple in my head and I can't make the right word come out, under the altar, who are saying, when are you going to avenge our death, God? It doesn't always work out in an earthly way. But for those that are called, Romans 8, 28, what does that say? All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things include some of the suffering, some of the difficulty, and even the evil done to us. Questions, comments? Well, let's go back over to Genesis 50. And we're going to pick it up in verse 22. We see the chapter of Joseph closed out. Joseph stayed in Egypt, and he, he, along with his father's household, he lived 110 years. He saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, and also the sons of Micar, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. So Joseph and Manasseh get kind of tied up as one in all of this tribal stuff. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to go, about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham. So here is Joseph saying, day's coming when our descendants, your descendants and mine, are going to come up out of Egypt. And um, he also made this promise to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and shall carry my bones up from here. What's he asking them to do? Yeah, when you guys go out of here and go to Canaan, take my bones, rebury me in Canaan, and I, I'm not going to take the time to do it. I've got the verses down, uh, but we we could look over uh, in uh, Exodus 13 and Joshua 24, where indeed they they did take his bones in the Exodus and bury him in Canaan. And so Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And so he laid at rest in Egypt for those years until the exodus occurs. Questions, comments? Okay. I feel 
inadequate for what I'm going to do, but we're, we're going to do it today anyway. The handout. If you look at the handout, <clears throat> um, I tried to be fair to the world. The content of this handout, it's not a direct copy, but um, is the verses are the same and so on. This is from the MacArthur Study Bible, but Joseph is a type of Christ, and looking at the details a bit about that, I think is extremely worthwhile. Um, and so I, I want to take just a minute and go down through and talk about the parallels with regard to Joseph and Jesus. And when we say a type, uh, what is a type? But when we look at scriptural things and we say, well, this is a type of something, what it means is there are characteristics about this that we can see in a greater fulfillment, in a greater way, um, typically greater. And in, in we see it a lot in Jesus. One, one of the types of Christ is Melchizedek, high priest. And that's even called out in the book of Hebrews to, in detail about how Melchizedek, that Jesus is a, that Melchizedek is a type for Jesus, and that Melchizedek was different than the priests that you see in the time of Israel in the descendancy of Aaron. Those priests were forbidden to also be king, but Melchizedek was not only a priest of God; he was also Melchizedek was a king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. So here is a man that is both king and priest. And so when we get to Jesus, he's not of the right tribe. He's not from Levi. He's from Judah. And, of course, Melchizedek wasn't a descendant of Abraham, as far as we know. But, no, he couldn't have been because of timing and where he was. And so as, as we look at this, then we can start to draw things out of Melchizedek to understand Christ better. When we read Christ as a priest... In Hebrews, they go to great lengths to say, now wait a minute, this is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type for Jesus, and so Jesus is not like a Levite priest in so many ways. And then Hebrews expands on that far beyond anything to do with Melchizedek about his sacrifice was his own blood. It was adequate once all for sin and so on and so on and so on. Um, when we look at Joseph as a type for Christ, um, these are the parallels that were seen that were brought forward in this, in this arena. Both were shepherds of their father's sheep. Both had a father that loved them dearly. And um, I don't want to just totally brush over these things. There's the references there. Let's talk for a minute about both of those. Um, in what ways was Joseph a shepherd of his father's sheep? It's what they did for a living. It's what they did for a living? That was their business. There were times that Joseph was sent out to check up on his brothers as one of the fellow shepherds, right? How was Jesus a shepherd of his father's sheep? Let's answer this question first. In this statement, who is Jesus' father? God himself. So how was Jesus a shepherd of his father's sheep? Who are the sheep? Well, we are today. At one time, it was the followers that were his disciples there in Jerusalem, but it would be far expanded from that. And if we looked at John 10, that's less door to side, <coughs> Jesus, this is where Jesus said, I'm a good shepherd. My sheep know my name, know my voice. They follow me. When we get to the second one, his father loved him dearly. How do we know that Jacob loved Joseph dearly? Look at the way he wept. Look, yeah, look at the way he wept. He gave him the robe. He gave him the coat. wasn't a favor, as it turned out, but it showed his love for Joseph. In what way did Jesus' Father, God Himself, show His love for Him? Well, we could say lots of things there, but if you look at the passage in Matthew 3, 
It's when you hear the voice from heaven following baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Follow him. If we keep going, hated by his brothers. In what way did we see Joseph hated by his brothers? <laughs> Many. How was Jesus hated by his brothers? In this passage we see here, this is a time when his brothers departed from him for they did not believe in him. And so they turned their back on him. Sent by his father to his brothers. We know the story of Joseph, don't we? How was Jesus sent to us? This isn't the verse that's listed there, but Hebrews tells us that in days of old, God spoke to us in many different ways, but in this time, he speaks to us through his son. And we can go through a lot of Hebrews. We're not going to have time to go down through these completely, but others plotted to harm them. We know the plot against Joseph. Who were the main plotters against Jesus? Pharisees. 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 And it was a conspiracy amongst multiple people. Robes taken from them. Who took the robe from Joseph? His brothers. Who took the robe from Jesus? Soldiers. Roman soldiers at the crucifixion. Taken to Egypt. Who took Joseph to Egypt? No, Joseph. Who took Joseph to Egypt? Oh, Joseph. Sorry. What? The Ishmaelite traders. Who took Jesus to Egypt? And you answered it. Joseph and Mary. And why? Order of God, and God did that because there was going to be a massacre of baby boys in Bethlehem. Can you imagine living through that? Um, sold for the price of a slave. Well, we know what happened to Joseph. How about Jesus? Judas got money to betray Jesus. Temptation. How was Joseph tempted? Potiphar's wife. That's what's in 39.7 there. How about Jesus? Satan. Satan himself took Jesus out and tempted him. Falsely accused. What was Joseph accused of that was false? Potiphar's wife. How about Jesus? Yeah, there were a lot of accusations along the way. At his trial, how was Jesus accused? Well, blasphemy, as he declared himself to be God, that was a final one. But if you go read the accounts, a big part of it was paid people to sell falsehoods against Jesus. And it blew up on them. Their own laws required a certain amount of corroboration between them. And they couldn't tell stories together enough so that they all lined up. And that's when, at one point... Uh, they ask him, well, do you, do you say you're, you say you're equal to God? And, they, and Jesus said, yeah, you said it. That's right. And that's when they tore their robes. Says, we don't need any more. But even that didn't meet their own laws. Bound in chains. I'm going to tell you that if I was writing this, I would not say bound in chains. I would just say taken captive. Because neither one, as far as we know, do they ever mention chains. But he, Joseph, when was he... Incarcerated. Potiphar's wife. Jesus? During the trial. Placed with two other prisoners. One was saved and the other was lost. For Joseph that was in prison. It was the baker and the cupbearer, right? The baker, to his, he was released to his death. And the cupbearer was released back to serving in the palace. How about Jesus? What are we talking about? Two prisoners, one saved, the other lost. Crucifixion. <clears throat> one thing that's interesting about the crucifixion is both of those guys started out mocking Jesus. And partway through, one of them repented. And said, we, don't, we deserve it, but he doesn't. And asked Jesus to remember him in the kingdom, and he did. Exalted after suffering. How was Joseph exalted? Yeah, he was basically, well, Egypt's yours, do what you want. 
I mean, that's pretty much what Pharaoh says every time Joseph brings something to him. How about the exaltation of Jesus following the suffering? Resurrection. The resurrection. Um, the words in Ephesians or Philippians two there are are pretty strong. Let's we got just a minute. Let's look at that. Philippians two nine through eleven. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Who's got that for us? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pretty strong words. Much higher position than Joseph, but Joseph had a good position. Both were 30 years old at the beginning of their public recognition. Both wept. When did Jesus weep? He wept over Jerusalem. There was another time. Lazarus' tomb, before he called Lazarus out. Both forgave those who wronged them. What were Jesus' words? They don't know what they're doing. And that, by the way, is not justification for sin. They were still sinning. They still had something they really needed forgiveness for, even if they didn't understand it. Both saved their nation. Very different kind of salvations. Joseph saved the nation of Israel, and for that matter, the nation of Egypt, from starvation physically. Jesus saved those that would believe, Jews and Gentiles alike, from an eternity of judgment as, as they placed their faith in Christ. What men did to hurt them, God turned to good. And I think we've talked about that quite a bit. Here's a point I want to make. When we think about Joseph being a type of Christ, there is a godliness about Joseph that we don't see elsewhere in Genesis. And we see it in the question that he asked his brothers when they came to him asking for forgiveness. He said, I'm not God. But he showed godliness in saying, God meant it for good while you meant it for evil. And um, there were, there's other godliness in, in Genesis. I'm not trying to say there's not. There are some very godly men in Genesis who were very obedient and, and were great in many ways. But... Joseph's godliness was amidst a level of suffering that was a bit greater than most. Um, Noah was mocked, but he wasn't thrown in prison. Um, and you could, you could talk about other situations there. But I think the key words here, God was with Joseph, and I'm going to say the very Holy Spirit of God was very much at work in the life of Joseph. And in that respect, I think, is a very strong parallel with Jesus Christ. Now Jesus was very cognizant of God's direction for him. I only do what I see the Father doing. I do what the Spirit says. I mean, the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, his intimacy with God himself was limited by his own um, willingness to draw back. When's this time coming? Well, I don't know. Only the Father knows that time. So. There were a few limitations, but Jesus Christ was very much led by the Spirit of God to do the work of God, and so too was Joseph. Questions, comments? I kept you a few minutes long. Next time we'll do an overview of the book of Genesis. Let me close in prayer. Father, as we look at Genesis and the foundations of um, creation and the way that you have focused your attention on mankind um, and our, our fall in sin as well as your plan of redemption we are so thankful for these words that let us see your work in action let us see your wrath let us see the times you bring judgment but also let us see the times that you arrange for grace and mercy to be applied to mankind and the people 
in specific in the account of Genesis and the way that it has very strong ramifications for what is to come. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus the Christ. Lord, lead us to exalt him above every other name at every opportunity, bowing our knees now and not waiting for a time that the whole populace must do that. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.